This is an ABC podcast. Here I am sitting in a studio in Gadigal country about to present another week of Late Night Live coming up the Aura of Laura. Then we're heading off to Italy to mark the homework of the new ultra-right Prime Minister and uh, then we're going to have a think about how anti-smoking ads in Australia saved and continue to save, I guess, countless lives. But first of all, the aura of Laura, and you had the PM at the press club uh, last week talking about national security, and that's uh, still the focus, but there's a segue to cyber security, Laura. There is, Philip. Um, cyber security is also... N- you sort of set the scene for a big cybersecurity splash today uh, with you know, a, a cybersecurity roundtable. Roundtables are very uh, in in Canberra at the moment. Uh, so he met with a lot of cybersecurity experts. Um, but um, he, what, what the government is doing, um, Malcolm Turnbull set up a cybersecurity safety centre uh, when he was Prime Minister, which essentially was, you know, Primarily, a um, it had a cybersecurity advisor who was Alastair McKibben, uh, and it, it's a place that for most people you can go and get information about what to do if you've run into cybersecurity problems. But as we saw with Optus last year and um, Medibank Private, uh, there are um, you know the whole thing is escalating into the area of personal uh, information being stolen and the like, and. Today, what they've announced is two things. One of them is uh, a sort of a, a coordinator of cybersecurity issues because it's such a sort of complex and amorphous issue that covers so many areas of regulation and different areas of government, and has to do with the public, uh, with the um, the private sector and the public sector. Somebody who can sort of look at all of those areas uh, in in toto. And it's interesting, Philip, that I think one of the crucial changes from the Turnbull era move into this new one is that the old Office um, of Cyber Security Safety was within the uh, Signals Directorate, within the sort of, you know, within spook land, shall we say. Um, and this one is outside that, so it's going to have a different view, I think, of the world and have a greater capacity to deal with the private sector. But they've also signalled a lot of, you know, upgrades in the potential for um, for you know, cyber security authorities to intervene uh, when there's been a problem in a private sector company um, that's got a major uh, sort of hack going on. Um, It'll be interesting to see how all of that plays out. John Howard, my old mate, has been getting the media to focus on certain superannuation changes and how the people with millions in their funds will be devastated. But the, the Senate was looking at proposed changes to laws around whistleblowers. Can you untangle that for us, Laura? Oh, it's it's very tangly, uh, Philip. Um, th- th- of course, uh, it, this is just sort of one issue in the whole sort of area of things like transparency and uh, corruption. The government obviously introduced uh, its National Anti-Corruption Commission legislation last year and got that through the parliament. But whistleblowers was left off to one side and uh, it's taking a bit of a a bit of a sort of step-by-step approach would be the polite way of putting it I think Um, so there's a piece of legislation now before the parliament dealing with uh, public sector whistleblowers and uh, the senate uh, I think much to the irritation of the attorney general has um, had this inquiry that will be going through until next month looking at how that bill works and, you know, I'm not a lawyer, Philip. Um, I know you're, a, you know, you're actually a QC and, and bar and all sorts of things, but uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting dilemma here because one of the big uh, criticisms um, that's come up of this particular uh, chapter of whistleblowing legislation is 
is the one that relates to personal employment grievances. Now, if you're a, a whistleblower, you tend to end up not being a happy camper employee or you may already not be a happy camper employee before you become a whistleblower because usually by definition you're disagreeing with something that is happening in your workplace. Now, the problem that um, some of the uh, various transparency advocates um, like AJ Brown from Transparency International and Griffith University uh, point out is, and which um, senators uh, in both Greens and the Liberal Party also think is a problem, is that the way the uh, proposed legislation works, if you've got a what is regarded as a, a purely personal employment grievance, um, basically you're not covered by the whistleblower protection measures. Now, um, how you d define what is purely personal employment grievance and what is one that's related to the whistleblowing thing um, is, is a little bit unclear. It's also not clear that the legislation extends into parliamentary staff. So obviously, once again, if there are problems that turn up in a, you know, dear one, say, a minister's office, <laughs> who, who would have thought that would ever happen, that creates a bit of a problem in its own right. Now, this is all a bit subjudicial, so I'll have to tread carefully, but the proposed changes expand the scope of protections for people who claim they made a disclosure in the public interest, like Richard Boyle. Are those protections adequate? Uh, look, I think that's still to be tested, uh, Philip. Um, it's it's you know it's it, it's very um, tricky legal stuff, <laughs> and um, particularly if, if people are being mentioned, I don't know that it's sort of um, I don't feel comfortable about really talking about whether it's enough. But certainly there there are sort of considerable reservations about whether um, this legislation goes far enough. Partly because it's not a comprehensive piece of legislation dealing with all whistleblowers. This is just to do with people in the public sector. Uh, and while that covers a lot of the whistleblowers we know about, uh, you know, how, how it would act in toto is still a little bit unclear. If whistleblowers have made a claim for immunity under that uh, Public Interest Disclosure Act, I wonder whether the proposed changes apply to their cases retrospectively. Interesting question, Philip. Interesting question. Um, I think, uh, I suspect probably not. Uh, but, um, you know, we've heard in, uh, out of Senate estimates a couple of weeks ago that the prosecution of some of the really high profile um, pu public sector whistleblowers is, is amassed a bill of something like $7 million. You know, it's, it's just staggering amounts of money to uh, spend on uh, cases in which I think there's been concessions made that um, the effect of the whistleblowing was actually to the public interest. Well, I think we should be encouraging it rather than putting obstacles before it. I mean, for example, could these changes help junior public servants like the Centrelink woman who gave evidence recently to the Royal Commission about robo-debt? You'd like people to feel more confident coming forward. You'd hope so, Philip. I mean, I was uh, I was thinking about this earlier, um, partly because your illustrious producer Catherine asked me about it. Um, I think uh, in in the case of the um, the public servant at the middle of the robo debt inquiry, this is an interesting case. She she raised the problems that she could see with uh, with the system, uh, and was basically rebuffed. Uh, but uh, she, uh, she she didn't do it publicly, she did it within the system. Um, and the question is, to what extent was she punished for it? Uh, she certainly wasn't protected um, and she certainly never got an apology subsequently. But I suspect that at the very least what proper legislation about the protection of whistleblowers should do is change the culture uh, in the public service and in other places as well where you don't immediately just get um, ostracised and, um, and criticised and, um, and, and sort of possibly have your career ruined because you've actually tried to do the right thing. Any implications in the proposals that might affect uh, Julian Assange? 
Uh, I don't think so because he's not a public in in these ones because he's not a public servant. Um, so uh, well, that's I, a, that's debatable. <laughs> well, he's not a he's not he he was not and is not a um, a a publicly no. funded <laughs> federal public servant, Philip. No, so, you know, I, you, you can, I, I I know the point you're making. Independent member for Indy, uh, Indi, uh, Helen Haynes is calling for the government to legislate an independent whistleblower protection commission. Any comment on that? Uh, well, once again, this is um, there's a whole range of people, including uh, Helen Haynes, who are sort of saying, you know, we need a proper overall overarching framework for protecting whistleblowers, um, you know, keep keeping sort of a, a view of the you know, whistleblowers across all sectors of the uh, of the economy and the community, and um, once again, the government has still got to do all of this stuff. That's it's on this very long list of things they've got to do with transparency. All they've done at this stage is deal with the particular circumstances of federal public servants. Another roundtable was held by the government today, this time on press freedom as a response to the Your Right to Know campaign. You were there, Laura. Did the government make any concrete statements? Uh, look, I think it was a, an interesting... Uh, it was an interesting gathering, uh, Philip. You've got uh, the head of the ABC, the head of News Corp, um, uh, Lenore Taylor from The Guardian, you know, uh, James Chessel from Nine... Um, you know, lots of very very high-powered people, and me, <laughs> um, as, 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 uh, uh, with my press club hat on. Um, I suppose what came out of it that was really interesting is that there are so many arms of this discussion to be had. Privacy legislation, um, uh, secrets, uh, secrecy acts, uh, FOI uh, problems, um, and some really basic things, because uh, a lot of the focus was on those raids in 2019 uh, on the ABC and on Annika Smethurst, the journalist in Melbourne, in Canberra. Um, and um, it was being pointed out to the government that basically nothing has changed in terms of the legislative framework under which those raids took place. So there's a real plethora of issues that have, are coming up. One of them is uh, the issue of contested warrants. That is the capacity of uh, media organisations to contest um, the validity of a warrant to uh, to raid, to search um, their premises for material. And one of the things that, uh, what happens at the moment is it's up to a judge to uh, look at a contested warrant, but uh, the only test they can apply is whether there's good reason to believe that the material in question is on the premises. There isn't a public interest test in that uh, test that they have to make a ruling on. So this, th there's a whole range of issues. There's, there's a question, um, Peter Grester and, uh, and, and his organisation are saying, we need a legislative framework for, us, uh, for press freedom in Australia, which basically sort of gives a test a bit like human rights tests um, against which other legislation is judged. I think the general message from uh, the government out of the meeting was, look, we've got a whole heap of stuff coming down the track, uh, consultation papers um, on things like the privacy legislation um, and, uh, uh, and a range of other things. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's not clear exactly how much has actually materially sort of going to happen in the short term. I don't know whether everybody was completely satisfied with the outcome of it, but at least we're having the discussion again. I've been talking to the wondrous Laura Tingle, Chief Political Correspondent 7.30, and of course, Laura will be back with us next week. But now it's time to see how Italy is faring under the ultra-right leader, Georgia Maloney. <laughs> Beloved listeners, the uh, last time the Little Wireless Program travelled to Italy was in the run-ups to the uh, country's national election in September last year. The results of that election certainly shook up the political establishment within Italy and reverberated abroad. For not only 
did Italians elect their first ever female Prime Minister, Giorgio Maloney, they also elected the country's first far-right leader since World War II. Now, PM Maloney has been in office for four months now, so we thought it timely to return to Italy and take a look at what she's been up to. And who better to be our tour guide than Rachel Donadio, contributing writer to The Atlantic and former Rome bureau chief for The New York Times. Uh, Rachel's been reporting on Italian politics and culture for over 20 years and recently wrote a marvellous analysis of Maloney for The Atlantic, and she joins us now from Paris. Rachel, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. How is the small, blonde, fierce, street-smart, working-class and Gen X, as you so vividly describe her, how's she going? Well, that's a really good question. I think it's a tough job governing Italy, and I think she is in some ways struggling, but it's also clear that for a number of reasons, she has a pretty solid majority and isn't going anywhere anytime soon. She has been struggling with getting the economy stabilized. Italy is, is you know, it, it imports a lot of its energy and the war in Ukraine uh, has really affected that. There are boatloads of migrants arriving in southern Italy and that is kind of a part of her platform saying we don't want this to happen. Um, and also she is kind of trying to find her footing with Italy in Europe in the larger political dimensions of, of being along with Germany and France. She feels a little bit snobbed by them. But, you know, it's it's one thing to be a longtime opposition rabble rouser, which is her entire life, and then to be in power governing a country. So I think she has not quite found her footing, but she has a solid majority. You make the point that she's a skillful Polly who channels anger without coming off as unhinged. And that talent helped her break the glass ceiling. That is correct. Georgia Maloney was born in 1977 in Rome. She came of age in far-right youth movements. She has been a professional politician since she was a teenager. She was the head of the student movement of a party, a far-right party, and never went to university. She's just been a politician ever since then. In the year 2012, she founded her party, which is called Brothers of Italy. It takes its name from the opening lines of Italy's national anthem. And she has always defined herself as more far right, kind of not center right of Silvio Berlusconi, with whom she has a quite fraught rapport, and not exactly the League, which is another right wing party in Italy that is more regional. Its its heart and soul is in northern Italy, and the, its platform is keep tax revenue local to northern Italy. So what she says she is trying to do now and leading this right-wing coalition is to forge a conservative movement in Italy. That's what she says, but her party has its roots in fascist party, in post-war iterations of Italy's fascist party. That means you, you, that you make the point that Mussolini isn't as toxic in Italian history as Hitler is in Germany. It's true. There is a very interesting phenomenon, which is that Giorgia Meloni, Brothers of Italy, her party is essentially a grandchild of the fascist party. And questions of historical memory were really not an issue in this election campaign. Instead, she positioned herself as the voice of the working class, of regular people, as opposed to the elites. And the questions of, of World War II, Mussolini, those barely came up. When she has been confronted with those, she tends to shy away and just say, listen, you know, I was born in 1977. I have nothing to do with the war. But I think that the fact that her party can come to power in Italy is something that would have been hugely taboo a few years ago. And that and, says and something yet, about Italy's... And yeah. yet, although she's supported by members of the Mussolini family, she often attacks him. She talks about his uh, 1938 racial laws as the lowest point in Italian history, a shame that will ever mark our people. 
That's correct. But she said that only after being elected in her first speech to the lower house, those were the strongest and clearest comments she ever made condemning Mussolini's regime. And she only made them after she was elected. She has kind of gone out of her way to show that she is respectful of Jewish groups and because the, you know, the historical memory of her party is is pretty horrible on that front. Um, but it's, it is a, a kind of distressing peculiarity of Italy that the historical memories issues were hardly an issue in the campaign. And again, it's, she positions herself as, as um, against the elites. It's interesting to note that she placed first in Italy among public school teachers, shopkeepers, workers, whereas the university graduates and higher income Italians tended to vote more for centrist parties or for the center left. So I think that one of the issues motivating her rise to power is a sense in Italy that this is a country of haves that increasingly feel like have nots. And she claims to be the voice of those have nots. It's, of course, more complicated than that. There's quite a lot of paradox in her positions. She's anti-abortion. But she says she won't, in fact, uh, do anything to change Italy's reasonable abortion laws. The abortion law in Italy is popular. There would not be popular support to overturn that. And so she can talk as much as she wants about the traditional family. But I don't think that that, there is going to be legislative change on that front. She is very vocal in support of the traditional heteronormative family. And gay couples in Italy, gay people feel under threat from her because she is very much along the lines of defend the traditional Christian Europe, Christian values, Christian family. She is more in line with Poland and Hungary than France and Germany when it comes to allowing gay couples to adopt, for instance. And so this is a big part of her rhetoric. What that means in practice is another question. And this yet is her, another paradox. And yet her of own personal arrangements of anything but conventional. It's true. She did not move in with the father of her now six-year-old child until just before giving birth. She has not wanted to get married. She is not married. And she says she's an independent woman and she can do as she pleases. And I have to say that a lot of Italians admire her for that. Having children outside of marriage carries little to no stigma in Italy. That being said, she is defending, so to speak, the, the traditional family. It, it's. I think one of the things you have to bear in mind about Georgia Maloney governing Italy is that she can say a lot, but what she can actually do is more limited. She is bound by the confines of the euro, which Italy shares with other countries, of the European Union, there, which comes there with was treaty commitments, talk. and of NATO. There was mm-hmm. talk, though, of, of pulling out of the EU. Um, there was not really talk of pulling out of the EU at all in this election. There has been ambiguity in the past about her thoughts on the euro, the single currency, but there's nothing she can really do about that. Italy is in the euro. She's committed to keeping Italy in the euro. So that is why markets are calm. Italy has seven NATO bases, and so she's committed to keeping Italy in NATO. And a big part of her job is to keep in line her junior coalition partners, Silvio Berlusconi and Matteo Salvini, who are openly pro-Putin. Berlusconi said some outrageous things a few days ago, basically blaming the Ukraine war on Zelensky for provoking Putin to have to invade. And she really has to keep him in line. She she made a visit to uh, Kiev, didn't she? Yes, which is a, a pretty significant thing because she went against her base in order to support Ukraine because her base tends to be more philo-Putin, philo-Russian in a sense of, oh, he's a great defender of of uh, Christian values, not so much that... Um, um, and so, yes, she recently went to Kiev and that was seen as, a, as, a, as an important move supporting Zelensky, supporting Ukraine. She has not committed Italian fighter jets to this war. She is doing, I think, what she can on the image front, on the reality front, that might be slightly different. You uh, already mentioned her hardline attitude against uh, gay people. And I'm thinking about her comprehensive views on the LBGTQI rights. But last night, the centre-left 
chose a 37-year-old lesbian who champions gay rights to be the opposition leader. Exactly. Ellie Schlein was chosen after many rounds of voting and defeated the person who was seen to be the frontrunner, bon- Stefano Bonaccini, who's the head of the Emilia-Romagna region in northern Italy. Schlein is a progressive politician. She is seen as a kind of Italian answer to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but I think she has less of a base than, than AOC. And she is very much a different face of Italy, an opposition to Maloney, but of the same generation and of a completely different stance. She, Ellie Schlein, the new leader of the center-left Democratic Party, will definitely have her work cut out for her because that party has many different factions and is enormous and struggles to be nimble enough to get the voters that it should get. And that is one of the reasons why Giorgia Maloney has come to power in Italy is because the left has failed to form coalitions strong enough to stay in power. Rachel, you write that uh, Maloney offers a culture war based on triggering key words, borders, family, roots, identity, immigration, us, them. Well, let's look at the grim news about uh, an overcrowded wooden boat being wrecked off the coast of Calabria. 59 migrants are reported dead, including 12 kids. In opposition, Maloney took a very hard-line stance against uh, what she described as illegal immigration. Has her government maintained that stance? Well, Maloney, now that she is the leader of Italy, expressed her deep sorrow for the many human lives torn away by human traffickers. So she expressed a certain amount of human condolence about this tragedy. But a large part of her platform and her stance is we have to stop illegal immigration. We have to stop these boats from arriving in Italy. It is very hard to do that because there are tens of thousands of people fleeing wars and repressive regimes, some also economic migrants. And now they're coming from Turkey in boats to southern Italy. And it is easy for her to say, we have to stop this, and it's hard to stop it. And also, there's a humanitarian, when a boat is stranded in the Mediterranean, it is up to the country in whose waters that boat has landed to rescue these human lives, to rescue these migrants. And so what the country has to do morally and logistically and practically kind of then foments this culture war where she can point to these pictures and say, see, these people are coming and, you know, I don't know, they're coming illegally and they're not really part of of what we want Italy to be. It becomes a huge brouhaha in, in the media and it really cuts to the heart of one of the things that she's trying to do, which is say, oh, we need to have, you know, a kind of an us and them, we Italians versus versus these illegal migrants. She very much is informed by Renaud Camus' great replacement theory in which she is concerned that non-white and non-Christian immigrants will eventually supersede white Europeans. And this is a part of her base and it is a quite distressing development, I would say, in Italy. No. Shortly after taking office, uh, she sparked a diplomatic row with France over immigration. What happened? Well, Italy refused to give harbour to an NGO boat that had rescued migrants from drowning in the Mediterranean and forced that boat to dock in France. And France didn't want the boat either because there is this kind of game of takeaway or, give you know, just we don't want this. In going on in the Mediterranean. And France, as you know, is caught up in its own migration debates. Macron is under pressure from the right in France to not let in immigrants. And Italy just has a lot more coastline than France. And so Meloni kind of scored points with her base. You know, hey, we stuck it to snobby France. They got the boat and we didn't get it. But it really has done significant damage to Italy's relationship with France, which affects the balance of power in the EU. And her base is really not terribly sophisticated and it's like, stick it to France. But Italy needs to work with France in the EU. And that is also why Maloney found herself not invited to dinner at the Elysee with Olaf Scholz and Macron and Zelensky a few weeks ago. Despite her problems with Berlusconi, you make the point, I know, that he, in fact, played a terribly important role 
part in her career. He made her the youngest minister in Italian history, but there are fracture lines between them. Yes, and Berlusconi is the first person to start giving mainstream respectability to the far right. Georgia Maloney, before founding her Brothers of Italy party in 2012, was a member of a party called National Alliance, and that sprung from post-war offshoots of the fascist party. Berlusconi brought that party into his coalitions from the very start in the early 90s. 1994. And yes, in his 2008 government, she was the youngest government minister representing that National Alliance Party. But she has never had much um, adoration for Berlusconi. She was one of the only women in that government who had not been a showgirl on Berlusconi television channels in the past. She is very much her own woman. And in the fall, Berlusconi was quite obnoxious to her and was in the Senate and apparently he had a list of adjectives describing her, like she's bossy, she's, you know, um, patronizing. And he was caught on camera with that list on his desk, which he'd written in quite large type, probably for the camera to pick up, although we don't know for sure. And an Italian television reporter said to her, well, what did you think of that list that Berlusconi had? And she snapped back and said, one adjective is missing, that I'm not blackmailable. And she's implying that Berlusconi was. And so it's kind of great political drama. Um, But she, you know, he in some ways, yes, helped her become the youngest government minister, but she was never a part of his party. And I think that's important to bear in mind. Rachel, uh, Italy, of course, tops the Guinness Book of Records when it comes to uh, a rapid turnover in governments, even faster than Australia's. It's had, uh, what, 70 in the past 77 years. Will Maloney serve a full term? I believe that Maloney has as good a chance of serving a full term as any government of those 77. And that is because I do not see any alternative majority. Usually governments fall when smaller parties pull out of coalitions because they think that they have a chance to gain more in elections. That is how the government fell in July. The technocratic government of Mario Draghi, one of the most respected Italians in the world. And at the moment, Maloney got 26 percent of the vote, her other right-wing coalition partners, all this adds up to a majority, whereas the center-left does not have a clear majority because it doesn't have clear coalition partners. So believe it or not, I think that this unlikely far-right Gen X, fierce, blonde, street-smart young (laughs) woman governing Italy has as good a chance of any as actually serving a full term. Rachel, thanks immensely for that. I've been talking to uh, Rachel Donadio, contributing writer to The Atlantic and former Rome Bureau chief for the New York Times. And coming up, we're going to tell you how advertising which promoted cigarette smoking could also be used to stop it. In the 1970s, Paul Hogan took on the Marlboro Man with his uh, Winfield cigarette ads and uh, they become an indelible part of our culture and our social history. But Australia has an equally powerful history of anti-tobacco advertising. There's been, well, there were some very funny ads and some absolutely devastatingly confronting ones. Now, these campaigns are some of the reasons we now have one of the lowest rates of smoking in the world. An exhibition of the ads has just opened at Acme in Melbourne, formerly known as the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. And uh, one of the content organisers is Thomas Keogh, historian and manager of the Heritage Programme at the Cancer Council. Victoria, although when I knew it and worked with it, it was the Anti-Cancer Council. Thomas, before we uh, pat ourselves on the back too much, Australia started behind the rest of the world on smoking regulations and education, didn't we? Yes, we did. So if we're starting the story in the late 60s, 1968, 9, somewhere like that, we 
had far fewer regulations than comparable countries like the United States and the UK and Denmark. Um, and we also permitted uh, tobacco advertising on television and radio, which those countries by that point had banned. So we were starting behind the eight ball a little bit in the late 60s. There was evidence from overseas that advertising increased uptake among young people pitching to their notions of, well, transition to adulthood, uh, Thomas. Yes, that's absolutely correct. So what was clear from a number of studies throughout the 60s, particularly in the UK, was that uh, smoking advertising, even if it was geared towards or notionally pitched at adults, portrayed smoking as cool, as uh, sophisticated, as something that marked you as a fully grown, actualized adult human. Um, and so therefore appealed to youth and teenagers in particular. I, rem- so I remember question. doing an anti-smoking ad for This Day Tonight in its infancy and uh, we used the argument about people's, you know, sucking pencils, even nipples, as, as a sort of a as, a, as a calming influence. And I remember we had the Marlborough man sitting on a distant hillside and we zoomed in to discover that he was sucking his thumb. And up on the screen came the words, smoking is for suckers. It wasn't one of, <laughs> wasn't one of yours, but uh, it wasn't a, a bad effort. Now, a, a hero appears, and it's not the Marlborough man, it's Nigel Gray, an old yes. mate and a huge talent. Yes, Nigel Gray um, kind of looms over everything that we do at Cancer Council today. He transformed what was a small cancer charity in 1968 into what one writer has called a cancer control enterprise by the time he finished in 1995. And so uh, a big part of that transformation was tobacco control and a big part of the tobacco control story was anti-tobacco advertising. So yes, Nigel Gray is the real hero in this story, definitely. And he was only, well, he was only 40, wasn't he, when he took it on? Absolutely. He was 40 years old in 1968 when he was appointed. Um, he had been, he'd had a stellar career up to that point. I mean, he'd worked overseas in Cleveland and um, he'd been assistant director of the Royal Children's Hospital. And so he'd come to uh, Cancer Council with this kind of unique suite of skills. He was a, a medically trained doctor, he was a researcher and also a um, fantastic administrator. And so I think he brought something really unique. Well, what, what, what I liked about him was his theatrical gifts. Not surprising given that his dad managed the, uh, the Melbourne Comedy Theatre for J.C. Williamson's. <laughs> he did, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he did. So I think uh, that's part of this story actually is that Nigel... Um, was able to, as the mythos goes, I'm not entirely sure if this is absolutely correct, but as the mythos goes, he was able to get an in with Warren Mitchell and Miriam Carlin, who feature in the earliest ads, through connections that his father made. Well, you're now cueing me to uh, play some bits and pieces to the beloved listener. Let's hear one of the early ads. This is Miriam Carlin, who was very big at the time, Mm-hmm. an actor visiting from the UK, and she does this pro bono. She's looking very glamorous, walking down the steps of a mansion, elegantly waving a cigarette. Hello. I owe everything I have to cigarettes. My cough, stained fingers, yellow teeth, <laughs> and incurable lung cancer. <laughs> I'm sorry, isn't that dazzling? Okay, so it was Miriam plus the legendary Warren Mitchell, an old friend of the program, uh, and also Fred Parslow, the Australian actor, got involved. Here's Warren, as his then very famous alter ego, Elf Garnet, is in front of the telly, slamming down a book and being seduced by a TV ad and, of course, lighting a cigarette. Blooming doctors. No one tells me what I smoke. Have a puff of mine. Smooth, satisfying, mild, manly. Soothing and stimulating. Of course, uh, 
our star, Nigel Gray, went on to, to bigger things, not better, but certainly bigger, because he, uh, he went on to head up the WHO's tobacco control program. He did, uh, and also uh, the UICC, which is the Union for International Cancer Control's tobacco control program as well. Um, and he, that was just one of the many things he did on the international stage in public health. In fact, he uh, led a note, quite a bit of research. And, um, but I think tobacco control is certainly his most famous contribution and the one that people know him best for. I, I remember his other tactic which was to increase the price of cigarettes, to make them more mm-hmm. and more and more expensive, to try to use that as a dynamic to, to reduce smoking levels. Now, he remained good pals with Warren Mitchell, and here's Warren Mitchell being himself in a different style of head. I smoke about 20 fags a day, and I wish I didn't. Perhaps I'd stand a better chance of persuading my kids not to smoke. I'd probably live a bit longer too. I quite enjoy life. You know, there's no doubt that cigarette smoking is dangerous. I only hope I can get the willpower to give it up. I hope you can too. Now, the early satirical ads were actually, of course, satirising the tobacco ads, and uh, that caused a bit of problems, I understand. Well, that's right. So the the aim of that campaign in 1971 was to, convi- to create a bit of a public and media storm to convince the federal government at that time to ban tobacco advertising on television. So it accompanied an advocacy campaign directly to government, and it, but the ads themselves were meant to elicit a hostile response from television channels, which they dutifully supplied by refusing to air the ads when they initially were presented with them. And so they that was then shopped to the press by Nigel, who <laughs> <laughs> who cleverly, because there's one ad with uh, Sir McFarlane Burnett, the first Australian Nobel Prize winner and uh, public health kind of luminary and the first Australian of the year. And he just spoke to camera on that ad about the dangers of smoking. And so when the ads were were rejected by the TV channels, Nigel went to the press and said, the channels are preventing the first Australian of the year from telling the public an important public health message. And of course, this created the exact, the kind of firestorm that he was hoping they would create and force the government to air the ads (laughs) or to allow them to be aired. I remember Mac Burnett's uh, wife was dying of cancer, not of lung cancer, but he took cancer very, very seriously. Back in 1970, uh, the board invested 50000 that's about $600,000 today. It's a tiny amount of money. Yes. Well, I mean, it was big for, for the the Anti-Cancer Council at that time. So the, as I said before, the Cancer Council was quite a small operation at that time and $600,000 was, as David Hill, who's former CEO of the council, uh, would say, was a fair whack of money at that point in time. But uh, they used that money in, almost exclusively for buying ad time on television. The ads themselves were all made pro bono. So the, as you said before, the actors all... Uh, gave their time for free, and even the creative, the advertising creative John Bevins, who helped design those ads, he uh, worked pro bono as well. So, yeah, it, it was it wasn't a huge amount of money, certainly in comparison to what tobacco was putting into advertising, but it was a lot for a small public health organisation. <laughs> also, at the time, it was the custom to get free free ads from the networks. That's certainly what happened with, with my life. Be in it, we paid for a few spots. But over and above that, one hoped to get free to airs and uh, that was something else that Nigel was always uh, negotiating. You talk about John Bevins, who's recruited as a young creative from Ogilvy. He made uh, 26 ads, all with the same actors, but he also did that famous sponge ad. Describe, did, that, yes. describe that to the listener. So the sponge ad, uh, which some of the listeners may be familiar with, it's really become an iconic uh, anti-tobacco ad, uh, not just in Australia but around the world, uh, shows a, a sponge wringing out the amount of tar that the average smoker inhales 
in a, I think it's a period of a year. Um, and over that is a voiceover explaining that, that accumulation of toxic chemicals in the body. So it's the first kind of visceral, shocking ad that aired on Australian television. And indeed it was. I mean, later it would be echoed, and I think quite absurdly, by the, uh, the bowling ball ad forum for HIV AIDS. But yes, I was doing a lot of work for the Anti-Cancer Council then, most famously slip, slap, slop with the, with Sid, the sibilant seagull. That was another, yes. another <laughs> campaign that came out of the Anti-Cancer Council of Victoria. It, it did, yeah. And also an iconic ad, ad um, campaign that Sid the Seagull is still around and still advertising the, the protection for, uh, from the sun. It is now the longest running ad on Australian television. Now, the Gorton Coalition government had been lobbied to ban cigarette advertising, but uh, John allowed them to run with some changes, such as the time of day. I guess that's quite similar to gambling ads now. Well, I guess, I mean, that's a big question, the comparison between historical uh, events and today. But I, 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 gambling does present, gambling advertising certainly elicits the same level of public hostility that tobacco advertising did at the time. I think in recent polling, it's about 72% of Australians dislike gambling advertising, would like to see it banned in the same number it's about, it's about 74, 75% of Australians in 1971 felt the same way about tobacco. Exit, uh, exit John Gordon, enter Gough Whitlam. He came in with a platform of banning tobacco ads, didn't he? He did, yes. He came into government with a, with a platform to ban tobacco ads and legislated that in 1973. And that was a phased banning over a, about um, five years. So it was supposed to be, they slowly phased them out of uh, off TV and, and radio. I, I recall, however, that print advertising was allowed to continue, as did sports sponsorship. What, what about the Fraser government? So, yes, when Fraser um, took power after the dismissal, he, um, there was a degree of discussion within the party room about whether Whitlam's legislation should be allowed to continue or whether it should be repealed. And, of course, there was a... A, a dispute from different sides of the the party about what, about about that question, but ultimately Fraser decided that he would allow the legislation to to stand, and it seems that the reason his reasoning for that was that it would be politically damaging to repeal something that was so popular. I remember the change of tack in the eighties, and uh, advertising became more shocking. Yep. Tr trying to frighten people into quitting, of course. It included a very emotional one, a dying dad in hospital who'd missed his, uh, his daughter's game. You should have been there, Dad, she says, beaming. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ray Lawrence, that great Australian director, directed that. Then tell me about the bubble wrap ad. It shows a... Oh, look, I'll play a grab. It shows a cigarette burning holes in a plastic yes. bubble. Lungs are made up of millions of tiny air sacs. Chemicals in tobacco smoke destroy them. It's called emphysema, and it's irreversible. Even if you only smoke low-tar cigarettes, chances are you have emphysema in its early stages. Just about every smoker does. Call Quitline, 131848. We should also remind people, in fact, many people don't remember this, but, of course, the cigarette industry denied any culpability. They refused to accept that there was a link, even, between smoking and lung cancer. It was a huge war that just went on and on and on. Now, Thomas, we're the envy of the world in terms of our impact on smoking from a range of measures, not just the ads. We have plain packaging restraints on where you can smoke and, of course, Nigel's tactic with price increases. We've done a bloody good job, haven't we? We have. We have done. From going from behind kind of the pack 
to really the front of it um, over that 50-year period. And um, a lot of that has to do with a, a kind of combination of of strategies, both regulatory, advertising, and also the in, the the informed way that behavioral science has been used to design campaigns and advocacy across the board. So uh, we've put all of those forces to bear to really bring down the smoking rate. But overarching that is the simple fact that people have woken up to the fact that smoking is so damn dangerous. That, was, uh, that <laughs> wasn't the Anti-Cancer Council. That was a huge tectonic plate shift around the world. Yeah, well, certainly, certainly, we've uh, people have seemed to have cottoned on to the idea that smoking is incredibly bad for you, and likely to kill two thirds of the people who do it. Um, so, but I think you've, we've got to take into account the suite of measures that were deployed in Australia to to bring people to that resolution and also to give them the support they needed to quit. So things like quit line, motivated by advertising, motivated by GP support, et cetera, have all helped drive down the smoking rate. How to tackle vaping? Does it need to be tackled? Well, <laughs> that's a very big question and probably a difficult one for me to answer. I mean, look, uh, as a historian, my kind of tendency is to always look backwards and look at what we've done previously and vaping is very much the new frontier. Um, I will say it's an increasing problem and we do know that large numbers of young people are taking up the habit and it is inhaling toxic chemicals, which is always going to be a problem or potentially a problem. For friends, so, friends of mine in the, uh, in the business of trying to get drug laws reformed suggest that it also may, in fact, be a help with harm minimisation. So we'll leave that story for another program. Thomas Keogh, thank you very much for coming on. Thomas is historian at Cancer Council Victoria. The Anti-Tobacco Advertising Exhibition, part of the Moving Minds Exhibition at Melbourne's ACMI, opened just a few days ago, but you'll have a very generous two years to get there because it closes in February 2025. On our next, uh, we can't be blunt with stunt because Ian's taking a brief break, but we have his stunt double, Naomi Smith, plus over-acidic and over-fished. We'll look at the troubled waters around Asia and we'll meet the intrepid French archaeologist who led the international effort to save ancient Egyptian temples from the floodwaters of the Aswan Dam, although one finished up in the New York Museum. to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.